Uh, Father in heaven, here we are to come now to your word. We pray that you would speak to us. You promise grace to us from your word. And so we count on that. We know uh, that as we come before you that we do not deserve to be in your presence. We have nothing in and of ourselves that we can provide that will coerce or entice you to give to us. But we know simply that you're gracious to us and your grace to us has come in Christ Jesus. So we plead him and we come in his name and we ask that you would grant to us the grace of your word to us, that we would hear it, understand it, receive it, and that it would indeed transform us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 13. Hebrews in chapter 13. I want to read verses 22 to 25. Hebrews in chapter 13, please. Hear the word of God. I appeal to you, brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, this brings us to the end of Hebrews. Um, We've been here since April 10th, uh, 2005. And... uh, so it's, it's been a while. Unlike his expression that uh, he has written to them briefly, I suppose I've preached to you something less than briefly, but uh, it's his fault uh, for writing so uh, condensed and writing briefly. But uh, as you know, as we've come to the end of this letter, he gave to us uh, uh, from verses 20 and 21 a benediction. If you remember there was a good word at the very end. And the reason that he gives that benediction, that blessing, is that he wants to, to, to raise our gaze because this book has been filled with the will of God for us, how we're to please him, how we're to live in such a way that we'll be obedient to God. And the great danger of a message like that over and over again is that we'll try to muster up all the strength within ourselves to do it. Uh, and that will just lead to self-righteousness. Uh, the other danger is that we may read about this lofty call for us to live by faith through all kinds of circumstances, even with the world against us. And that may just defeat us, just at the outset, to think, how could we ever do that? Uh, And so he desires now at the end of his letter to do what he's been sprinkling throughout the whole letter, and that is to raise our gaze, to take our look off of ourselves and to put it upon God. And so he reminds us, you remember from that benediction, that that it's God who equips us with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So he's saying God equips us by way of his word, through prayer, through having a community of believers with whom we share this life of faith, uh, by God's wonderful providences that he brings into our lives, circumstances and people that, uh, that, that, that equip us, Uh, for doing his will. He's always at work in us by his spirit to transform us, to change our hearts, working by his word to draw us to himself, uh, uh, forming Christ in us. Uh, So it's God, he says, who's who's equipping us. It's God who's working in us. And so we can trust uh, and trust in him. 
And so therefore we have this confidence, this confidence that he is in fact a God of peace, a God who desires reconciliation with us, so much so that he, he made an eternal covenant. That is, he, he, he made a promise before the foundations of the world that can never be changed. An eternal covenant wherein he promised to reconcile to himself sinners like you and me through Christ. This eternal covenant. And we see it played out in the Old Testament in shadow form with high priests and animals that are being sacrificed in tents and temples and all of that. But it reaches its fulfillment, of course, in Jesus. This eternal covenant. It comes and Jesus is glorified through the incarnation by coming and living for us, dying for our sins, taking both the precepts and the penalty of our sin upon himself. The precepts meaning the commandments of God that he lives out for us. The penalty of sin meaning that he takes the penalty of our disobedience upon himself. So he lives and he dies for us that we might receive the righteousness of God, all the goodness that comes through the obedience of Jesus and receive the forgiveness of God which comes because of what Jesus did on the cross. That was a huge statement. Get the tape, write it down. And, uh, uh, but, but you can live there for the rest of your life, if you'd like, uh, because he does come for us, uh, obeying the precepts of God, taking the penalty of God, so that we might live. He is, God is, the God of peace who makes reconciliation. So that final benediction was a wonderful one, as we, as we, as we, as we read, that he is the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That is, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. He still lives to make sure that everything he accomplished um, is brought to his people, is brought to us. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. All of this through the blood of the eternal covenant. And by this, God equips us with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to the glory of Christ. And you see, that's the great guarantee of all of this, the glory of Christ. Christ will be glorified, and he's glorified amazingly so, wonderfully so, in saving us. So we know it's true. We know it will happen, right? So now he comes uh, to, to give some final greetings, and then ultimately, I think, a final benediction. Notice verse 22, he says, I appeal to you, brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. (laughs) That is, if you would sit down to read this letter of Hebrews, you could probably do it out loud in about an hour or so. That's about a sermon, isn't it? Uh, And so it's just a relatively brief thing that he's written. If you remember, on quite a number of occasions through this letter, he said, I wish I could tell you more. I wish I could go on with this, but I can't. Uh, And and so you get this sense of time with him. Maybe it's whatever it is he's writing on, he's going to run out of. But but he's going to give it to them as concisely as he possibly can. He says, I've written to you briefly, and it's a word of exhortation. This is not a theological treatise, though it's filled with theology. But his intent and the theology of all of this is to, 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 to urge us on, to continue to live by faith. That's his desire That's his purpose in all of this. It isn't just to teach us theology. It isn't so that we can pass a multiple choice test at the end, though we should be able to. But he says, I want to exhort you on. I want to make sure that by what I'm telling you, you're going to continue to live by faith. 
And then verse 23, he says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Our dear Timothy has been in prison. Who knew? You know. And now he's been released. And that's just a little reminder of the context in which this author is writing. Almost casually, it seems, oh yeah, Timothy's been released. You know, like, like that's a common event that somebody gets imprisoned and released. Because it was a common event that people would get imprisoned for their faith and released. Sometimes not released. But again, just, to, just as a reality check on us. You know, we can spin through that very quickly. And then he says, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Another blessing. Another benediction. It's not a prayer. He's not praying that they receive grace, though I'm sure he did. He's saying, I want to state this fact to you. I want to give you this information from God. I want to declare this to be true about you. Grace is with you. It's with you individually. It's with you corporately as a group of God's people. You're the people of God's grace. And that's to be a blessing for us. It's to be a blessing for us. It's a blessing for them to know that they're people of God's grace. God's grace is with them. In other words, they carry it in them. I mean, it's a part of who they are. And he wants to tell them, never forget that. Never forget that God's grace is with you. Don't look anywhere else for grace. Don't look anywhere else for God. But his grace is with you. That's an important thing. Grace, obviously, is an important word uh, in the scripture. J.I. Packer says that grace summarizes the whole New Testament. I would just, if I could, correct J.I. Packer and say it summarizes the whole Bible, but that little quote came out of a New Testament thing, so I appreciate that. But I think he would agree that grace summarizes, is the key word of the whole scripture. It's not so much in the Old Testament as a word, it is as a concept, but most certainly in the New Testament, both in word and concept, this idea of, of grace, it's crucial for us. I mean, passages should just sort of blurt into your mind if you're a reader of the Bible. For instance, in, in Ephesians, uh, in chapter 2, uh, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is through grace. Then in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, and verse 10, notice how Paul describes his life. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So he's saying, grace has made me. It's formed me. I'm who I am because of grace. He isn't saying, I'm who I am because of where I was born. I'm not who I am because of my education. I'm not who I am because of my wealth. I'm who I am because of grace. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, he's saying, grace made me what I am, and grace now empowers me to do what I do. So I am who I am by grace, and I do what I do because of grace. If it weren't for grace... I'd be literally lost. I'd be nothing. And then in the book of Titus, in chapter 2, in verse 11, we read this. For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's saying, listen, uh, grace brings salvation, but it also then trains us. So, so grace saves us, grace empowers us, and, and now he's saying grace trains us. It's the very grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How important is that? So it really does make us who we are. It really does summarize the Christian life. Grace. We're people of God's grace. And we know, in a sense, what grace is. It's a gift. We know that, that God's grace is his goodness, his kindness, expressed to people who deserve judgment. See, it isn't just a gift that's given, but it's a gift that is is given to people who deserve the exact opposite of what they're being given. You see, we deserve death, we get life. We deserve hell, we get heaven. You see, we deserve to be estranged from God, we get his very presence in our lives. We deserve to be separated from him, but he reconciles us to him and, and, and calls us his own adopts us into his own family. And so you see, this grace isn't just just getting something, but this something that we get is, is the opposite of what we deserve. And the great thing about grace for us, one of the great things about grace for us, is that it's not conditioned upon our merit or our character. It's not conditioned upon our grace, upon our merit or character. One author puts it like this, He says, grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. That is in grace. That's reward. That's what you've earned. So grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. I even like that better, right? God's grace means he doesn't treat us as we deserve. And so, it isn't conditioned upon our merit or demerit. It's amazing that our sin doesn't keep us from God's grace. In fact, it's in our sin that grace comes. If there was no sin, there'd be no need for grace in that sense. We would deserve it. But... Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Grace is treating a person without the slightest reference to desert whatsoever, but solely according to the infinite goodness and sovereign purpose of God. See, grace depends upon God's character, not ours. And if he chooses to be gracious, then he will be. And he will treat us not as we deserve, but he'll grant to us this gift that's the opposite of what we do deserve. That's the amazing grace of God. But the question then arises, how can God do that? How can God treat us with, without consideration of our sin, without consideration of our rebellion against him, without, our consider, without a consideration of, of our sin against him and our sin against each other? How can he do that and still be moral? How can he do that and still be righteous? I mean, you and I couldn't do that in a sense. I mean, can we really overlook 
as okay child pornographers, rapists, murderers, Hitlers, Stalins, Bin Ladens. If we just simply came out and said, that's all right, it's okay to be like that, it's okay to do that, and I could list, you know, less, less you know, um, sort of um, amazing sins to us, you know, the ones that you and I commit all the time, but that's not quite this, you know, dramatic enough, so you get my point. But, but we can't do that. That would be immoral for someone to say that that rape was just fine, that that murder was okay, that that, that child pornography piece is, is just fine. We wouldn't say that. We'd say, that's wrong. So how can God get away without saying to us, that's wrong, and you need punishment because of that? You need to be judged because of that. How can he be gracious to us? Well, the only way that he can be gracious to us is in Jesus. You see, grace is first expressed in Jesus and then given by him, received by him. And by what I mean by grace is first expressed in Jesus is the fact that the very presence of Christ is the grace of God. When God made this eternal covenant, that was gracious. He was saying, I'm going to treat them according to grace. And the way that I'm going to do that, my grace to them is going to be Jesus. I'm going to send him. To, to take their lives and to live for them and to die for them. And that was a gift of God. That was the grace of God. And then you see it frees God, if we can put it that way, to be gracious to us. Because it enables him to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. You see, God doesn't say our sin is okay. God says it deserves hell. So he sends one who's worth us all. And he says, this one who's worth you and more will take your penalty. And if he does that and he pays that, then I can justly free you because the penalty's been paid. That's the wisdom of God. Who else could have thought of that? Who else would have done that? And so he's gracious to us in Jesus. So always when we think of the grace of God, it's always the grace of God through Christ. There could be no grace without Christ. Christ is the, the, the very epitome of grace, the very expression of grace to us. And it enables God then to be gracious to all who believe in our Lord Jesus. It frees him to bless us in that way. So God is just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. And so now what the author of Hebrews is saying to us at the end of this, remember God's grace is with you. Remember that God will not treat you as your sins deserve. Remember that God will treat you in such a way that is always good, always best, always right for his glory and for you. Don't ever forget that. No matter what circumstance happens in your life, understand God's grace is with you save you, to empower you, to train you for godliness. It's the very goodness of God that comes to you. Now, I don't think we should miss the fact that the author of Hebrews says this at the very end of his letter. The very last statement, uh, the grace of God be with all of you. And I think it's significant. 
there because you get the impression that he's saying, okay, now through my letter, grace has come to you. Now I want you to take it with you. I want you to understand that grace is with you. And we get that really not so much from the work of the author of Hebrews, but from the Apostle Paul himself. If you read through all of Paul's letters, all you have to do is read the beginning few verses and the end few verses. You'll find this characteristic. In the beginning of his letters, he writes, grace to you. At the end of his letters, he writes, grace be with you. Now you get the sense that he thinks grace is coming to you in the middle of all that. He starts out, I'll just, just give you some examples so you know I'm not lying. First Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then chapter 16 and verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. See? Um, Galatians, we'll just take them randomly here. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, then chapter 6, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You can just go every one of them. You'll find close to the beginning, close to the end, those two expressions. So again, you get the sense that Paul, and I think the author of Hebrews as well, is saying that as we read the scripture, what we should be expecting to come to us is the very grace of God. That's why Paul, when he was talking to these elders from Ephesus, you read about this in Acts chapter 20, he commends them, he says, to the word of God's grace. That is, from the scripture, from the word of God, God gives these gifts to us. He graces us with his, through his word. And so the question, since we've spent all this time in Hebrews, is what grace has come to us? What grace has come to us over these last 14, 15, 16 months, whatever it's been? And again, just as an aside, when you come to open the scripture, whether it's in your morning or evening or whenever it is you read the Bible during the course of the day, whether you're going to a Bible study, whether you're coming to church for Sunday school class for worship, the thing that you should be expecting from your time in God's word is grace. That he will not treat you as your sins deserve, but he'll be good to you. And through his word will come to you grace. So the question is, what grace have we received through the course of these months from Hebrews? And I just want to pinpoint three things, three, three graces, if you will, and, and, and help us work our way back through a little bit the book of Hebrews just to remember. And I hope for you that you might be able to pinpoint times over the last year and a half that God's grace has come to you by way of this message. If it hasn't, then purpose in your heart if you will, in your life, to say, well, it needs to happen. I need to pay better attention uh, to the grace of God that comes to me. The first grace, I think, that we find here is the grace of conviction through warnings. You may not associate conviction and grace or warnings and grace together, but it really is the very grace of God to warn us. It's the judgment of God to let us go on on our own way. You might know from your Bible reading in Romans in chapter 1, the beginning of, or the middle of chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, uh, Paul begins to lay out the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And essentially, the wrath of God that comes against people is simply letting them go their own way. Just letting them go. 
letting them do whatever it is that they desire to do, giving them over to all the sinful desires of their heart and not putting a check on that and not warning them and not stopping them from that. That's the judgment of God when he leaves us alone. The grace of God is when he doesn't. The grace of God is when he warns us. You remember David, King David, sinned grievously. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. Then he lied about that. And then he had her husband killed. And he lived with that for how long, we don't quite know, but it seems like for some while. You can read about the turmoil that David was in in Psalm 32. He says, I feel like my bones are just being crushed during this time. But it appears as if he never confessed that sin to God during that time at all. And it was the grace of God that sent Nathan the prophet to David to warn him to reveal his sin. If God were going to judge David, he would have just left him alone in his misery, just left him alone going off and living his own way. But, but God loved David, had made a covenant with David, couldn't, if you will, if we could put it that way, leave him alone. He had, he had obligated, God had, himself to David by way of covenant, by way of love. And so he came to David to warn him. And, and you remember, Nathan the prophet came and gave this little story. And he said, he said there was a rich man who had many, many, many animals many calves, many goats, many lambs. And there was this one poor man who simply had one little baby lamb that he loved. It was a household pet. They named this thing. And, and his children loved this, 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 this lamb. And then a stranger came to visit the rich man, and the rich man didn't take one of his own, but he went and got this one little baby lamb that was loved by this other poor family. And he slaughtered that and fed it to his guest. David was appalled. Nathan said, that's just what you did. And it convicted David. And you can read Psalm 51 about his confession. And that was grace to David. And so we've been reading through these warnings in scripture. For instance, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's grace to us, you see. When we're drifting away, when we're not paying attention, we're not living in such a way that's pleasing to God, when we're not living by faith, it's God's grace that comes to us and wakes us up and shakes us and says, don't you get it? This really is life. This really is the only way to live. This is the only way. There is no other way. If you go another way, you won't escape the judgment of God. That's to wake us up. I don't know about you, but I need that. And then in chapter 3 and verse 12, he writes, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so he's saying, listen, it's possible to be in a community of believers and still be deceived. So wake up. Don't give in to sin. 
because it, it loves to deceive. And so together as a community of people, unmask it and encourage each other and to, to point these things out so that you don't fall into that hardness of heart. And in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so he's warning again, chapter 6, uh, this unbelievable warning in chapter 6, verse 4. For it's impossible, he writes, to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. He's saying, listen, don't, don't just hang around the Christian community and enjoy the benefits without committing to Christ. Because you see, that will get you nowhere, in fact. Your heart will just continually be hardened. And then if you fall away, you won't want to come back. Then in chapter 10, verse 26, he writes, For if we, if, we, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For I know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, he's saying, the only way and that's grace you see it's grace to continue to speak the truth to us it's grace to continue to warn us it's grace to continue to tell us what the consequences are of not following after Christ it's grace to come to those who are appearing to fall away and to come to them and, and, and share with them the truth so I think the first grace that we Received, and I think over a period of time throughout this book should have been sort of little wake-up calls, little slaps in the face that said, hey, 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 the grace of warnings. And then I think this is a grace of wisdom. Uh, because through the book of Hebrews, he's telling us how we're to live. He's saying that we're to live by faith. Uh, that's really the, the guts, the crux of life, to live by faith in Christ, to live trusting believing, following Him. Now the great blessing that we have is to know that God will work faith into us. Uh, for instance, in Hebrews in chapter uh, 11, verse 6, we read, And without faith it's impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so we realize the only way that's pleasing to God is for us to live by faith. Now if you couple that with a great benediction at the end, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good work, every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. What's well-pleasing in his sight? That we live by faith. Therefore, what's he going to work in us? Faith. So we can, we can see the course of our lives, all the circumstances, all the events, all the thoughts, everything going on. Is God at work in us building faith? Because that pleases him. 
in every circumstance, in every situation, the question is, how can I trust him? Where do I trust him? What does it mean to trust him here? No matter what the circumstance is, realizing that that's real life. And that's wisdom, you see. That's the grace of wisdom. God could let people, and he does, go, go throughout life all the time, just ignorant about what life is all about. They simply don't know. And God, by his grace, gives us wisdom by his spirit works it in us to live by faith. And then he shares with us a great deal of what it means to live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So he's saying, I want you to trust me. Trust the promises that I've given you, even if you don't see them right now. In fact, living by faith means you won't see the end of all these promises yet. And then he gives us all kinds of people that have gone before us to, to say, this is how they lived. I mean, take, take a look at Noah. I mean, he had to build this boat for a long time. And there wasn't an ocean close by. And yet, by faith, he built it and was saved through it. Abraham was called to go to a country that, that he didn't even know where he was going when God first called him to go there. And even when he got there, he was still a stranger there. He never really owned it. He never owned anything in it. And yet by faith, he followed. And it it tells us, listen, uh, you may not receive in this life all that's promised, but continue to live by faith. If your expectation is you're going to believe God in this moment and get it in this moment, that's not faith. Let's continue to trust him throughout. Trust that he's good. Trust that he'll deliver in this life. Or the next. Abraham and Sarah. God made a promise they were going to have a child. She was dead in her womb. And yet, by faith, they conceived a child. God had made a promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. But then he said, take your son, your only son, the the son who's the covenant bearer, Isaac, and kill him. Slay him, sacrifice him. And Abraham, by faith, did that, trusting that God knew what he was doing, trusting that if Isaac was important in all of this, which he was, that God would raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, in that instance, he did. Consider Moses. By faith, left Egypt. Moses was, grew up in Pharaoh's household, and Moses did a calculation by faith. The calculation by faith was suffering, the reproach, of Christ was greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Added up the numbers, said, this is better. That's faith. Because you see, without faith, the treasures of Egypt are much more valuable than suffering for anybody's sake. So by faith, we make calculations all the time. What does it profit a man? To gain the whole world and yet lose his soul. Not only that, we see that, that faith, um, that God gives us the wisdom uh, to realize, again, that faith doesn't always bring the results we want. You remember from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the author writes, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me if to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forth justice, 
uh, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We go, yeah, that's the life of faith. But then he continues on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We don't know the details. We don't know all the outcomes. But he says, now I want you to live by faith. Remember that. And God's grace is with you. And the grace that we receive is his wisdom to know that. friend in Denver has a brain tumor just operated on about to face uh, radiation and chemotherapy and the doctors have said there's a 20% chance he will live three years and in the midst of all that because he's a believer in Christ he's saying God is good well, who else makes that kind of calculation? Who else thinks that through? He says, I'm probably going to die. It's 56. Probably going to die. God is good. Pray that I'm godly. Pray that I live by faith. We're praying for his healing too. Some are son in half. Some conquer kingdoms. We're to live by faith regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the worldly outcome that comes our way. That's how we're to live by faith. That's the wisdom of God to us, the grace of God to us in that kind of wisdom. And we realize that we're to do this even in, in the midst of difficulty. We're to endure hardship. And the reason that we're to endure, endure hardship in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 for they disciplined us for a short time, that is, our earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so you see, we know in the midst of all of this, in every circumstance that comes our way, God has a plan. He's training us. He's training us in holiness. And we trust him by, because he's good. That whatever he brings into our life will be that training and that will be good and that will be glorifying to him. That is the very wisdom of God. And finally this, I think through the book of Hebrews, we receive the grace of assurance. To know that God is with us and to know that our faith will remain strong and we'll walk with him. And that all because... The word of assurance to us is to consider Jesus, to fix our eyes on him. For instance, he begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he's saying, this is, this is the one in whom you trust. He's the very son of God. He's the very creator of all that is. He's the very sustainer of the universe. He's the exact imprint of God, the perfect representation of God. To see him is to see God. He has a name, the name Lord, that is above every other name. Trust in him. And that's the assurance that we're given. And of course, not only that, not only that kind of assurance, but in chapter 2 and verse uh, 17 we read, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he's saying, listen, this actually happened. Your sins, as a believer in Christ, have been propitiated. That's the grace of big words. Uh, bring big words like that bring wonderful grace to know what it means to have your sins propitiated. It means that they're completely paid for. It means that God has no case against you anymore. It means that God isn't angry in the least with you. That everything that your sin was disgusting to him has been dissolved, been dealt with. It's over. There is no case against us in heaven at all. No one can bring an accusation against someone whose sins have been propitiated. You can't even do that. So if you say, God, you remember yesterday's sin, he'll say no. You say, God, boy, I really feel bad about that. I, you'll say, what? You say, it's done. It's taken care of. That's the grace of assurance. And we know the certainty of that because we know Jesus. For instance, in chapter 5, verse 5, So also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You're my son today, I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 9, he's our perfect high priest. He sinned not, therefore... He represents us perfectly before God. We don't need anyone else. That's the gift of assurance. Knowing that trusting in Jesus is all we need. Then in chapter 6, verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the in, into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, when Jesus went behind the curtain in the very presence of God, we went with him. And our sins were dealt with there. Assurance. And this wasn't some temple, some tent made with human hands. This was the very presence of God. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of his own creation, not of this creation. 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's the grace of assurance, to know that he did it with his blood, perfectly acceptable by God, and he secured it. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's saying now your conscience can be cleansed, it can be purified. Why? Because you know it's done. You know he's paid for every sin. And not only that, he lives. Chapter 7 and verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The gift of assurance. To know that Jesus right now is in glory. To know that at any time when something comes against you, he's there making certain that you will continue to live by faith. Because he's going to save completely. He's not going to lose any of us. And all that we know is because of who he is and what he did and what he continues to do. That eternal covenant that was made, that promise that was made, you get a sense that there was this sort of committee meeting, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if that doesn't sound too irreverent. sounds very Presbyterian. Uh, But there was this meeting, this covenant was made, and the Father had a plan, and he unveiled it, if we could think of it like that. And he unveiled it to the Son and to the Spirit. And his plan was this, that the Son would come and live and die for sinners so that the Father's grace could be known. And the Son agreed to that. And the Spirit agreed that when the Son had come to die and to give himself for sinners, that the Spirit would come, sent by the Son and by the Father, to work in the hearts of those for whom the Son had died and draw them to the Savior and draw them to him so that they could draw near to God and live in full assurance that they were reconciled to God and in him. And we see that on that night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And the same way he took the cup And this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And thus we're here to remember. And what do we remember? We remember the very grace of God. We remember that Jesus' coming is the expression of the very grace of God. And this coming of Jesus enables the Father to be good to us, though we don't deserve it. Because he's good to us in Jesus. And we know that his grace has come. And there are times when his grace comes to warn us. 
And there are times when grace comes to be God's wisdom to us. And there are times when God comes with grace to assure us. And we can live in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us, that this word from Hebrews after all these months would not just fall on the ground, but would go with us. And it would go with us in grace. And that we would heed the warnings. That we would listen and receive the wisdom. And that we would live assured with our gaze upon you, knowing that you that is equipping us and working in us, faith itself, that which is pleasing to you. So Father, in these moments, enable us to cast our gaze upon Jesus. He is the author and completer of our faith. And I pray that in this simple meal, this bread and this juice, that you would take these elements and work in such a way that would really cause us to gaze upon Jesus, to feed upon him, that our faith would increase, that your grace would go with us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remind you that this uh, table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. Who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel that is freely, as this very one who has come and lived and died for us, that we might have life. A desire to live as becomes a follower of Christ, as becoming of one who trusts Christ, that that's your heart's desire. And you're trusting that God will enable you to do that. That's true of you. Let me ask you to come these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, just in your own head, think, God's grace is with me. Please come. The response to our benediction this morning is that we'll sing the doxology together as we do on these communion Sundays. So please receive this as God's benediction. His grace is with all of us. And together let us sing.